Section 11 of A History of the Four Georges in Four Volumes, Volume 1 by Justin McCarthy. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 9 Malice Domestic, Foreign Levy. Some of the earlier letters of Lady Mary Wortley Montague are written from Hanover and give a lively description of the crowded state of that capital in the autumn of 1716. Hanover was crowded in this unusual way because King George was there at the time, and his presence was the occasion for a great gathering of diplomatic functionaries and statesmen and politicians of all orders. Some had political missions, open and avowed. Some had missions of still greater political importance, which, however, were not formally avowed and were for the most part conducted in secret. A turning point had been reached in the affairs of Europe and the king's visit to Hanover was an appropriate occasion for the preliminary steps to certain new arrangements that had become inevitable. Even before the king's visit to his dear Hanover, the English government had been paving the way for some of these new combinations and alliances. The very day after the royal coronation, Stanhope had gone on a mission to Vienna, which had something to do with the arrangements subsequently made. It would, however, be paying too high a compliment to the patriotic energy of the king to suppose that he had gone to Hanover for the sake of promoting arrangements calculated to be of advantage to England. Let us do justice to George's sincerity. He never pretended to any particular concern for English interests when they were not bound up with the interests of Hanover. But he had long been pining for a sight of Hanover, he had now been away from his beloved Herrenhausen for nearly two years, and he was consumed by an unconquerable homesickness. That his absence might be inconvenient to his newly acquired country or to his ministers had no weight in his mind to counterbalance the desire of walking once more in the prim Herrenhausen avenues and looking over the level Hanoverian fields or treading the corridors of the old Schloss where the ancestral Guelphs had reveled, and where the ghost of Königsmark might well be supposed to wander. The act for restraining the king from going out of the kingdom was repealed in May of 1716. The Prince of Wales was to be appointed temporary ruler in the king's absence. This appointment was the only obstacle that George admitted to his journey. In the Hanover family, father had hated son, and son father with traditional persistence george was animated by the sourest jealousy of his son one reason if there had been no other for this animosity was that the young man was well known to have some sympathy for the sufferings of his mother the unhappy sophia dorothea imprisoned in alden and had at least once made an unsuccessful effort to see her since george came to england he persisted in regarding his eldest son as a rival for popular favour and this feeling was naturally kept alive by the enemies of the house of hanover to this detested son george had now to entrust the care of his kingdom or else abandon his visit to dear herrenhausen the struggle was severe but patriotic affection triumphed over paternal hatred the prince was named not indeed regent but guardian of the realm and lieutenant with as many restrictions upon his authority as the king was able or was allowed to impose and on july ninth 
George set out for Hanover, accompanied by Secretary Stanhope. He was not long absent from England, however. On November 14th, he came back again. Loyalists issued prints of the monarch, waited upon by angels and accompanied by flattering verses, addressed to the president of the loyal mughouses. But the devotion of the mughouses could not make George personally popular or diminish the general dislike to his German ministers, his German mistresses, and the hordes of hungry foreigners, the Hanoverian rats, as Squire Western would have called them, who came over with him to England, seeking for place and pension, or pension without place. The Thames was frozen over in the winter of this year, 1716, and London made very merry over the event. The ice was covered with booths for the sale of all sorts of wares, and with small coffee-houses and chop-houses. Wrestling rings were formed in one part. In another, an ox was roasted whole. People played at pushpin, skated, or drove about on ice-boats brave with flags. Coaches moved slowly up and down the highway of barges and wherries, and hawkers cried their wares lustily in the new field that winter had offered them. All the banks of the river, and especially such places as the Temple Gardens, were crowded with curious throngs surveying the animated and unusual scene. During George's absence from England, he and his ministers had made some new and important arrangements in the policy of Europe. From this time forth, indeed, from the reign of Queen Anne, England was destined, doomed perhaps, to have a regular part in the politics of the continent. Before that time, she had often been drawn into them, or had plunged enterprisingly or recklessly into them, but from the date of the accession of the House of Hanover, England was as closely and constantly mixed up in the political affairs of the continent as Austria or France. In the opening years of George's reign, France, the Empire, Austria, that is to say, for the Holy Roman Empire had come to be merely Austria, and Spain were the important continental powers. Russia was only coming up. The genius of Peter the Great was beginning to make her way for her. Italy was as yet only a geographical expression, a place divided among minor kings and princes, who in politics sometimes bowed to the Pope's authority and sometimes evaded or disregarded it. The power of Turkey was broken, never to be made strong again. The Republic of Venice was already beginning to sink like a seaweed into whence she rose. The position of Spain was peculiar. Spain had for a long time been depressed and weak and disregarded. For many years it was thought that she was going down with Turkey and Venice, that the star of her fate had declined forever. Suddenly, however, she began to raise her head above the horizon again and to threaten the peace of the continent. The peace of the continent could not now be threatened without menace to the peace of England, for George's Hanoverian dominions were sure to be imperiled by European disturbance, and George would take good care that Hanover did not suffer while England had armies to move and money to spend. The English government found it necessary to look out for allies. France was under the rule of a remarkable man, Philip, Duke of Orléans and Regent of the Kingdom, ought to have been a statesman of the Byzantine Empire. He was steeped to the lips in profligacy, 
he had no moral sense whatever unless that which was supplied by the so-called code of honour his intrigues his carouses his debaucheries his hordes of mistresses gave scandal even in that time of prodigal license but he had a cool head a daring spirit and an intellect capable of accepting new and original ideas he must be called a statesman and despite the vulgarity of some of his vices he has to be called a gentleman as well he could be trusted he would keep his word once given other statesmen could treat with him and not fear that he would break a promise or betray a confidence how rare such qualities were at that day among the politicians of any country the readers of the annals of queen anne do not need to be told the regent's principal adviser at this time was a man quite as immoral and also quite as able as himself the abbe dubois afterwards cardinal and prime minister dubois had a profound knowledge of foreign affairs and he thoroughly understood the ways of men he had fought his way from humble rank to a great position in church and state he had trained his every faculty and all his faculties were well worth the training to the business of statecraft and of diplomatic intrigue it is somewhat curious to note that the three ablest politicians in europe at that day were churchmen swift in england dubois in france and alberoni of whom we shall presently have to speak in spain the quick and unclouded intelligence of the regent unclouded despite his days and nights of debauchery saw that the cause of the stuarts was gone while that cause had hope he was willing to give it a chance and he would naturally have welcomed its success but he had taken good care during its late and vain effort not to embroil himself in any quarrel or even any misunderstanding with england on its account and now that the poor struggle was over for a time he believed that it would be for his interest to come to an understanding with king george the idea of such an understanding originated with the regent himself there has been some discussion among english historians as to the title of townsend or stanhope to be considered its author whether townsend or stanhope first accepted the suggestion does not seem a matter of much consequence it is clear that the overture was made by the regent while king george and his minister stanhope were in hanover the regent sent dubois on various pretexts to places where he might have an opportunity of coming to an understanding with both dubois had lived in england and had made the personal acquaintance of stanhope there what could be more natural than that the regent who was a lover of art should ask dubois to visit the hague for the purpose of buying some books and pictures about the time that the english minister was known to be in the neighbourhood and how could old acquaintances like stanhope and dubois thus brought into close proximity failed to take advantage of the opportunity and to have many a quiet and informal meeting what more natural than that dubois should afterwards go to hanover to visit his friend stanhope there and that he should live in stanhope's house the account which the lively lady mary wortley montague gives of the manner in which hanover was then crowded would of itself explain the necessity for dubois availing himself of stanhope's hospitality and for stanhope's offer of it the portuguese ambassador lady mary says thought himself very happy to be the temporary possessor of two wretched parlours and an inn 
Dubois and Stanhope had many talks, and the result was an arrangement which could be accepted by the king and the regent. The foreign policy of the Whigs had for its object the maintenance of peace on the European continent by a close observance of the conditions laid down by the Treaty of Utrecht. The settlement made under that treaty was, however, very unsatisfactory to Spain. The new Spanish king, Philip of Anjou, had formally renounced his own rights of succession to the throne of France and had given up the Italian provinces which formerly belonged to the Spanish crown. But, as in most such instances at that time, an ambitious European sovereign had no sooner accepted conditions which appeared to him in any wise unsatisfactory than he went to work to endeavor to set them aside or to get out of them somehow. Philip's whole mind was turned to the object of getting back again all that he had given up. This would not have seemed an easy task, even to a man of the stamp of Charles V. It would almost appear that any attempt in such a direction must bring Europe in arms against Spain. The regent Duke of Orléans stood next in succession to the French throne in consequence of Philip's renunciation of his rights by virtue of the Treaty of Utrecht. The Italian provinces, which had once been Spain's, were now handed over to Austria, and Austria would of course be resolute in their defense. King Philip was not the man to confront the difficulties of a situation of this kind by his own unaided powers of mind. He was very far indeed from being a Charles V. He was not even a Philip II. But he had for his minister a man as richly endowed with statesmanship and courage as he himself was wanting in these qualities. Giulio Alberoni, an Italian, born at Piacenza in 1664, was at one time appointed agent of the Duke of Parma at the court of Spain, and in this position acquired very soon the favor of Philip. Alberoni was of the most humble origin. His father was a gardener, and he himself a poor village priest. He rose, however, both in diplomacy and in the church, having worked his way up to the favor of the Duke of Parma, to work still further on to the complete favor of Philip V. The first marked success in his upward career was made when he contrived to commend himself to the Duke de Vendôme, the greatest French commander of his day. The Duke of Parma had occasion to deal with Vendôme and sent the Bishop of Parma to confer with him. The Duke de Vendôme was a man who affected roughness and brutality of manners and made it his pride to set all rules of decency at defiance. Peter the Great, Potemkin, Suoro, would have seemed men of ultra-refinement when compared with him. His manner of receiving the bishop was such that the bishop quitted his presence abruptly and without saying a word, and returning to Parma, told his master that no consideration on earth should induce him ever to approach the brutal French soldier again. Alberoni was beginning to rise at this time. He offered to undertake the mission, feeling sure that not even Vendôme could disconcert him. He was entrusted with the task of renewing the negotiations, and he obtained admission to the presence of Vendôme. Every reader remembers the story in the Arabian Nights of that brother of the talkative barber who threw himself into the spirit of the rich Barmecide's humor and by outdoing him in the practical joke secured forever his favor and his friendship. 
Alberoni acted on this principle at his first meeting with Vendôme. He outbuffooned even Vendôme's buffoonery. The story will not bear minute explanation, but Alberoni soon satisfied Vendôme that he had to do with a man after his own heart. What Elizabethan writers would have called a mad wag, indeed, and Vendôme gave him his confidence. Alberoni was made prime minister by Philip in 1715, and cardinal by the court of Rome shortly after. The ambition of Alberoni was, in the first instance, to recover to Spain her lost Italian provinces, and to raise Spain once more to the commanding position she had held when Charles V abdicated the crown. Alberoni's policy, indeed, was a mistake as regarded the strength and the prosperity of Spain. Spain's Italian and Flemish provinces were of no manner of advantage to her. They were sources of weakness, because they constantly laid Spain open to an attack from any enemy who had the advantage of being able to choose his battleground for himself, so long as Spain had outlying provinces scattered over the continent. Indeed, it is made clear from the testimony of many observers that Spain was rapidly recovering her domestic prosperity from the moment when she lost these provinces, and when the continual strain to which they exposed her finances was stopped. At that epoch of Europe's political development, however, the idea had hardly occurred to any statesman that national greatness could come about in any other way than by the annexing or the recovery of territory. Alberoni intrigued against the regent, and was particularly anxious to injure the emperor. He was well inclined to enter into negotiations, and even into an alliance with England. He lent his help when first he took office, to bring to a satisfactory conclusion some arrangements for a commercial treaty between England and Spain. This treaty gave back to British subjects whatever advantages in trade they had enjoyed under the Austrian kings of Spain, and contained what we should now call a most favoured nation clause, providing that no British subjects should be exposed to higher duties than were paid by Spaniards. Alberoni cautiously refrained from giving any encouragement to the Stuarts, and always professed to the British minister the strongest esteem and friendship for King George. Stanhope himself had known Alberoni formerly in Spain, and had from the first formed a very high opinion of his abilities. He now opened a correspondence with the cardinal, expressing a strong wish for a sincere and lasting friendship between England and Spain, and this correspondence was kept up for some time in so friendly and confidential a manner that very little was left for the regular accredited minister from Spain at the court of King George to do. Alberoni, however, was somewhat too vain and impatient. He had brought over Sweden to his side, partly because he found Charles Twelfth in a bad humour on account of the cession to Hanover of certain Swedish territories by the King of Denmark, who had clutched them while the warlike Charles was away in Turkey. The cession of these places brought Hanover to the sea, and were of importance thus to Hanover and to England alike. George the Elector was in his petty way an ambitious Hanoverian prince, however little interest he had in English affairs. He had always been anxious to get possession of the districts of Bremen and Verden, which had been handed over to Sweden at the Peace of Westphalia. Reckless enterprise had carried Charles the Twelfth, Swedish Charles, with a frame of adamant, 
a soul of fire, whom no dangers frighted and no labors tired, the unconquered lord of pleasure and of pain, too far in the rush of his chivalrous madness. His vaulting ambition had overleaped itself and fallen on the other side, and after his defeat at Pultoa, all his enemies, and some of whom he had scared into inaction before, turned upon him as the nations of Europe turned upon Napoleon I after Moscow. Charles had gone into Turkey and taken refuge there, and it seemed as if he had fallen, never to rise again. In his absence, the King of Denmark seized Schleswig-Holstein, Bremen, and Verden. At the close of 1714, Charles suddenly roused himself from depression and appeared at the town of Stralsund, almost as much to the alarm of Europe as Napoleon had caused when he left Elba and landed on the southern shore of France. The King of Denmark shuddered at the prospect of a struggle with Charles, and in order to secure some part of his spoils, he entered into a treaty with the Elector of Hanover, by virtue of which he handed over Bremen and Verden to George, on condition that George should pay him a handsome sum of money and join him in resisting Sweden. Nothing could be less justifiable or indeed more nefarious than these arrangements. They were discreditable to George I, and they were disgraceful to the King of Denmark. Yet the general policy of that time seems to have approved of the whole transaction and regarded it as merely as good a stroke of business for Hanover and for England. Alberoni, having secured the help of Sweden, got together great forces, both by sea and by land, and prepared for a reconquest of the lost Italian provinces. He occupied Sardinia and made an attempt on Sicily, but this was going a little too far and too fast. Alberoni frightened the great states of Europe into activity against him. England, France, and Holland formed a triple alliance, the basis of which was that the House of Hanover should be guaranteed in England and the House of Orléans in France, should the young king, Louis XV, die without issue. Not long after, the Triple Alliance was expanded into a quadruple alliance, the Emperor of Germany becoming one of its members. An English fleet appeared in the Straits of Messina, and a sea fight took place in which the Spaniards lost almost all their vessels. Alberone tried to get up another fleet for the purpose of making a landing in Scotland under the Duke of Ormond, with a view to a great Jacobite rising. But the seas and skies seemed always to have been fatal to Spanish projects against England, and the expedition under Ormond was as much of a failure as the great expedition under Alexander of Parma. The fleet was wrecked in the Bay of Biscay, the French were invading the northern provinces of Spain, and the King of Spain was compelled not only to get rid of Alberoni, but to renounce once more any claim to the French throne and to abandon his attempts on Sardinia and Sicily. Another danger was removed from England by the death of Charles Twelfth. A petty fortress and a dubious hand brought about the end of him who had, like the wind's blast, never resting, homeless, stormed so long across war-convulsed Europe, and left that name at which the world grew pale to point a moral or adorn a tale. Charles the Twelfth had just entered into an alliance with Peter the Great, 
for an enterprise to destroy the house of hanover and restore the stuarts when the memorable bullet at the siege of frederickshall in norway brought his strange career to a close in december seventeen eighteen a junction between such men as charles the twelfth and peter the great might indeed have had matter in it peter was probably the greatest sovereign born to a throne in modern europe an alliance between peter's profound sagacity and indomitable perseverance and charles's unbounded courage and military skill might have been ominous for any cause against which it was aimed the good fortune which from first to last seems on the whole to have attended the house of hanover and followed it even in spite of itself was with it when the bullet from an unknown hand struck down charles the twelfth these international arrangements have for us now very little real interest they were entirely artificial and temporary nothing came of them that could long endure or make any real change in the relations of the european states they had hardly anything to do with the interests of the various peoples over whose heads and without whose knowledge or concern they were made it was still firmly believed that two or three diplomatists meeting in a half clandestine way in a minister's closet or a lady's drawing-room could come to agreements which would bind down nations and rule political movements the first real upheaving of any genuine force national or personal in european life tore through all their meshes in a moment frederick the great soon after is to compel europe to reconstruct her scheme of political arrangements later yet the french revolution is to clear the ground more thoroughly and violently still the triple alliance concocted by the regent and stanhope and dubois had not the slightest permanent effect on the general condition of europe it was a clever and an original idea of the regent to think of bringing england and france these old hereditary enemies into a permanent alliance and it was right of stanhope to enter the spirit of the enterprise but the actual conditions of england and france did not allow of an abiding friendship the national interest as it was then understood of the one state was in antagonism to the national interest of the other nor could france and england combined have kept down the growth of other european states then rising into importance and beginning to cast their shadows far in front of them it seems only amusing to us now to read of king george's directions to his minister quote, to crush the czar immediately to secure his ships and even to seize his person end quote. the courageous and dull old king had not the faintest perception of the part which either the czar or the czar's country was destined to play in the history of europe at present we are all inclined and with some reason to think that french statesmen as a rule are wanting in a knowledge of foreign politics in an appreciation of the relative proportions of one force and another in the affairs of europe outside france but in the days of george i french statesmen were much more accomplished in the knowledge of foreign politics than the statesmen of england there was not probably in george's administration any man who had anything like the knowledge of affairs of foreign countries which was possessed by dubois but it had not yet occurred to the mind of dubois or the regent or anybody else that the relations of one state to another or one people to another 
are anything more than the arrangements which various sets of diplomatic agents think fit to make among themselves and to consign to the formality of a treaty the interest we now have in all these understandings engagements and so-called alliances is personal rather than national so far as england is concerned they led to a squabble and a split in george's administration it would hardly be worth while to go into a minute history of the quarrel between townsend and stanhope sunderland and walpole sunderland a man of great ability and ambition had never been satisfied with the place he held in the king's administration and the disputes which sprang up out of the negotiations for the triple alliance gave him an opportunity of exerting his influence against some of his colleagues fresh occasion for intrigue jealousy and anger was given by the desire of the king to remain during the winter in hanover and his fear on the other hand that his son the prince who was at the head of affairs in his absence was forming a party against him and was caballing with some of the members of the government sunderland acted on the king's narrow and petty fears he distinctly accused townsend and walpole of a secret understanding with the prince and the duke of argyle against the sovereign's interests the result of all this was that the king dismissed lord townsend and that walpole insisted on resigning office the king to do him justice would gladly have kept walpole in his service but walpole would not stay it is clear that walpole was glad of the opportunity of getting out of the ministry he professed to be deeply touched by the earnestness of the king's remonstrances he was moved it is stated to tears at all events he got very successfully through the ceremony of tear-shedding but although he wept he did not soften his purpose remained fixed he went out of office and to all intents and purposes passed straightway into opposition stanhope became first lord of the treasury and chancellor of the exchequer for a long time it must have been apparent to every one that walpole was the coming minister walpole himself must have felt satisfied on the point but he was probably well content to admit to himself that his time had not yet come walpole was not a great man he wanted the moral qualities which are indispensable to greatness he was almost as much wanting in them as bolingbroke himself but if his genius was far less brilliant than that of bolingbroke he was amply furnished with patience and steadiness he could wait he did not devise half a dozen plans for one particular object and fly from one to the other when the moment for action was approaching and end by rejecting them all when the moment for action had arrived he made up his mind to a certain course and he held to it if its chance did not come to-day it might come to-morrow he had no belief in men's sincerity or women's either there seems reason to believe that the famous saying ascribed to him about every man having his price was not used by him in that unlimited sense that he only spoke of these men of certain men and said that every one of them had his price but he always acted as if the description he gave of these men might safely be extended to all men he had a coarse licentious nature he enjoyed the company of loose women he loved obscene talk not merely did he love it but he indulged in and encouraged it for practical purposes of his own he thought it useful at men's dinner-parties because it gave even the dullest man a subject on which he could find something to say one could not call walpole a patriot in the higher sense 
he wanted altogether that fine fibre in his nature that exalted half-poetic feeling that faculty of imagination which quickens practical and prosaic objects with the spirit of the ideal and which are needed to make a man a patriot in the noblest meaning of the word but he loved his country in his own heavy practical matter-of-fact sort of way and that was just the sort of way which at the moment happened to be most useful to england let it be said too in justice to walpole that the most poetic and lyrical nature would have found little subject for enthusiasm in the england of walpole's earlier political career it was not exactly the age for a philip sidney or for a milton england's home and foreign policy had for years been singularly ignoble at home it had been a conflict of mean intrigues abroad a policy of selfish alliances and base compromises and surrenders the splendid military genius of marlborough only shone as it did as if to throw into more cruel light the infamy of the intrigues and plots to which it was often sacrificed no man could be enthusiastic about queen anne or george i the statesmen who professed the utmost ardor for the stuart cause were ready to sell it at a moment's notice to secure their own personal position most of those who groveled before king george were known to have been in treaty up to the last with his rival we may excuse walpole if under such conditions he took a prosaic view of the state of things and made his patriotism a very practical sort of service to his country it was as we have said precisely the sort of service england just then stood most in need of walpole applied himself to secure for his country peace and retrenchment he did not indeed maintain a sacred principle of peace he had no sacred principle about anything we shall see more lately that he did not scruple for party reasons to lend himself to a wanton and useless war well knowing it was wanton and useless but his general policy was one of peace and so long as he had his own way there would have been no waste of england's resources on foreign battlefields he despised war and the trade of war in his heart to him war showed only in its vulgar practical and repulsive features the soldier was a man who got paid for the trade of killing walpole might be likened to a shrewd and sensible steward who is sincerely anxious to manage his master's estate with order and economy and who for that reason is willing to indulge his master's vices and to sanction his prodigalities to a certain extent knowing that if he attempts to draw the purse-strings too closely an open rupture will be the result and then some steward will come in who has no taste for saving and who will let everything go to rack and ruin he was the first of the long line of english ministers who professed to regard economy as one of the great objects of statesmanship he established securely the principle that to make the two ends meet was one of the first duties of patriotism he founded if we may use such an expression the dynasty of statesmen to which pitt and peel and gladstone belong the change in our constitutional ways which set up that new dynasty was of infinitely greater importance to england than the change which settled the brunswicks in the place of the stuarts End of chapter nine